Welcome to the Art Song Podcast. My name is Daniela Theresia and I'm a mezzo-soprano, and I'm joined by my friend and pianist Suzanne Yeo for an episode of our Eternal Feminine series. This set of podcasts was inspired by my concert series called The Eternal Feminine, which expresses the feminine perspective through women's words and music. In the past, we've explored themes like love, relationships, motherhood, loss, and one's purpose in life. We've done this by performing pieces either based on female characters or pieces with a female composer or poet. For the Eternal Feminine podcast series, we've decided to focus on female composers and poets in order to bring these women into a modern context. Some of these women are not very well known, and we wanted to recognize them for their works, as well as bringing the art song genre to a larger audience. Today we'll be discussing the piece Ansturm by Alma Mahler Werfel. So I was thinking maybe you could tell us something about Alma herself, uh, you know, because because she was, by all accounts, um, quite a character. So Alma's kind of a difficult character to sum up, but um, for most of her life, she was basically a socialite and she lived through some interesting times. You know, she was born in 1879 and then she died in 1964. Right. So other words, sorry, um, not, you know, not not one, but two world wars. Mm hmm. And that's not even counting the string of famous men in her life. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Alma and her men. Uh, but you know, this in a way, this pattern was kind of set up early in her life. Um, she was the daughter of a famous painter and a singer. And Alma was devoted to her father, but he died when she was very young. And her mother um, had been having an affair with one of her father's students and then married him after her father's death. So... You know, this kind of foreshadows what Alma would do later in her life when she was married to Gustav Mahler. But at the time, you know, the young Alma didn't see it that way. She, she saw it as a, a betrayal of her father. And um, as Freud later speculated, she was on a search for a relationship that would duplicate that that kind of perfect in her mind, the perfect one she had with her father. And so she ended up marrying a much older man, which was her first husband, Gustav Mahler. Um, but as we know, you know, that didn't really work out either, just as the others after Mahler didn't work. <laughs> um, but she composed the piece Ansturm when she was pretty young, before she was even married. And Ansturm means onslaught. And we'll go into the meaning of the poem a bit more later on. But I feel that this piece kind of encapsulates Alma, um, her relationships in general. All throughout her life, she was in very emotionally turbulent relationships. You know, she had three marriages and, and even more affairs. and Generally involving some very famous people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, one of, famously, one of her first encounters was with Gustav Klimt. So, you know, before she was married to Mahler, she was involved with Alexander von Semlinski, who was her composition teacher. And it, it's kind of incredible, you know, the number of famous men who fell in love with her, you know, one after the other. 
After Mahler, there was the Bauhaus architect uh, Walter Gropius, and then the painter Oskar Kokotschka, and then the writer Franz Werfel. So she was actually sometimes referred to as the woman who touched four arts. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> I mean, she covered all the bases, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of extraordinary, considering how difficult of a person she could be. The newer biographies that that don't rely on her um, very self-serving memoirs have not been very flattering. You know, she kind of comes off as a real narcissist with a flair for melodrama. Yeah, the memoirs are famously unreliable. Um, she, she would just make stuff up to, to, to make herself look good. And, and, and the thing is, you know, even though she obviously had great personal charisma and, and, and you know, she, she could sometimes be a supportive friend, like, like she seems to have been with Schoenberg, for instance, but she could also be a pretty terrible person in some ways, especially, you know, with, with the anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Alma had a very high uh, opinion of herself and a very narrow view of others. <laughs> and she would... She would regularly make these awful anti-Semitic comments in her diaries, even about her lovers and husbands, a number of whom were Jewish, um, like Mahler and Simlinski and Franz Werfel. Now, you know, this is not in any way to excuse Alma, it's, but it, it's true that these attitudes were very common in her time. Um, for instance, at the time, the mayor of Vienna was quite blatantly anti-Semitic, but that didn't stop him from getting re-elected multiple times. And, you know, unfortunately, Alma was... She, she fell in that category as well, and her overwhelming narcissism definitely didn't help. <laughs> no, it you know, for example, when she was in a relationship with Semlinski, um, you know, one moment she would be praising him to the skies for his talents, and but if he didn't, you know, kind of acquiesce to her and flatter her, then she'd do a 180 on him and, and start making rude comments about him and use these anti Semitic tropes to criticize his appearance and, you know, things of that ilk. Uh, but then before you knew it, you know, she'd be back to gushing over him. And so back and forth, one way and the other. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, she was quite given to extremes, wasn't she? Yeah, and, and this was kind of typical of Alma. You, you see this in general with her moods as well in her private diaries that are a bit less curated, shall we say, than the memoirs. <laughs> you know, a lot of mood swings, back and forth. Uh, you know, later in life, she was basically an alcoholic and that probably didn't help <laughs> but a she was of benedictine a day I yeah think. <laughs> yes. so she was um she was very over the top a very passionate person kind of larger than life personality which i really think is exemplified in the piece ansturm yes well she was definitely a tempestuous personality to say the least yeah exactly and ansturm you know just in terms of the text is already a very turbulent piece and so when you throw in Alma's music on top of that, you know, she has all the, she writes all these time changes in the beginning and abrupt changes of mood and these crunchy chords. So it's hard not to feel that it's Alma's kind of inner self speaking out through the feet, through the piece. I guess that's why I chose this piece to explore further. You know, despite her many faults, I do find her a very complex and intriguing person. And, you know, Alma wanted so much to be an artist herself, but her ambitions were thwarted at least partly because of the, um, or partly by the expectations of the time that she lived in. So, you know, instead of letting herself freely explore her creativity, she seems to have gone along with the idea that she would be best as a muse to great men. Except, of course, that didn't really make her any happier in the long run. And it's kind of a shame because she she did write some very interesting music. It is interesting music. And, and, and you know, it's quite unconventional. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of her favorite composers and, and influences was Wagner. In fact, that's one of the things that she bonded with Zemlinski over early on was that they both loved Tristan und Isolde, um, which I think Suzanne might, uh, might elaborate on later on. But first, um, why don't we talk about the text of Ansturm and the meaning of it? Yeah, um, so Ansturm is set to a text by poet um, Richard Demel. Um, he was very well known at the time, but these days he's mostly only known because his poetry was so often set by well-known composers like Richard Strauss and Schoenberg. Um, he was notorious in his time because he wrote these erotic poems and, and <laughs> I mean, he even got charged of obscenity at one point. I imagine that probably didn't hurt. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I like to imagine it was sort of a cool, edgy thing to be doing, you know, writing music to sexy lyrics, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. He, I, you know, things haven't really changed all that much in this respect. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Anyway, Ansturm falls into this category, and, and, and the music reflects that. The text is, you know, it's not explicit, but it's... Uh, uh, pretty suggestive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, in the first verse, you have the speaker talking about the desire bursting darkly out of its bounds, uh, needing to go into the light lest it consumes them, um, and the nature of this movement into the light becomes clear in the second verse, where their inner feelings surge to a climax, which is depicted here by a stormy upwards run in the piano part, before shifting into this fluid, harmonically unstable passage, and ending in a sort of post-coital tristesse. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, and we're just going to play you a little bit of this so you can get a sense of this transition. So, so that, that's a wonderful transition. Uh, you know, th th there's a passage by Thomas Mann about the Lieberstadt from Tristan and Isolde that I've always loved. And I'm going to quote it because it's such a beautiful description. Um, also because it kind of applies to this context as well, even though we're obviously dealing with a completely different scale here. And it's from Mann's short story, Tristan, where a character is playing the Lieberstadt on the piano. And he writes this bit about how, and I quote, the fantastic crescendo mounted to its climax, broken by that almost shameless sudden pianissimo in which the ground seems to slide away under our feet and a sublime lust to engulf us in its depths. And I, I mean, I don't know if Olmo would even have known this story at the time it was published uh, in 1903, though she and Thomas Mann would become neighbors in Southern California much later on. Uh, but of course she would have known Tristan. And though Ansturm is a very different composition and a very different genre, I've always been reminded of that quote every time I hear or play that passage. It's the way she writes that pianissimo section. It's so unstable in its tone. Uh, you know, the, the tonality is so unstable. It's constantly moving, um, you know, and yet also inexorably going somewhere. But that somewhere is a location that's very different from what we find in Lieberstadt. Um, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't end in ecstatic transfiguration. In Wagner, we get that final glorious settling into the B major root position chord. You know, it's been withheld from us for, for so long that it comes, uh, so to speak, <laughs> a, a, as 
blissful relief. Mm-hmm. Here's what that sounds like. Now instead, with Anstrom, we have a very strange, unconventional, almost hesitant ending. It closes on a dominant seventh chord. That sort of implies it's going in the direction of a key that isn't related to anything before it. But it also doesn't actually go there. It just sort of stays suspended in midair, which is pretty weird for an ending. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and here's what that sounds like. comes out of the blue and but to me it feels like the piece kind of like it peters out at the end it, it's not really a very satisfying or conclusive ending yeah it, it, you know it's a strange way to end it's, it's not what you would normally expect from from you know something like that um but you know it does work very well with the text because it's quite uncertain as well i mean the speaker says post-orgasm that you tremble but you aren't angry with me um, which brings to full circle the opening lines. Um, oh, do not be angry if my desire bursts darkly, and so on and so forth. It's clearly a very complicated relationship here, which is, <laughs> <laughs> is sort of like almost relationships in general, I suppose. Yeah, and we have to remember that she chose to set this this text. Um, and given that she didn't exactly set a lot of poetry, presumably it resonated with her on some level. The thing that sort of jumps out to me, um, you know, about the text, is that feeling of emotional excess, of sort of being too much. And of course it's easy to imagine, uh, given what we know of almost tempestuous life, that there was perhaps some kind of fellow feeling there. Um, but to go back to the strange ending, its hesitancy actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, we know something has changed in the relationship between the two people, but it's not entirely clear how, even to the speaker. And, and so we end, hovering poised on the verge of a new key, without any kind of confirmation that we're actually going there. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a very unusual ending. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I think it's probably the most unconventional from the set of four songs that it comes from. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, with the other three songs... Um, Alma writes with the same harmonic complexity, but they're a lot more conventional in their structure, you know, whereas this one, there's so many jarring differences between the sections and, and the chords that she chooses that it, it does stand out from the rest. In, in these other songs, there are figurations that are used at the end that refer to figurations that came in the beginning. So it's always this nicely closed circuit, which is you know, more conventional. Um, Anstrom feels more random. It's got these very different things happening one after the other. But I, th- I think that works very well with the context of the poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think for all of her faults and shortcomings, Alma had the ability to create some very beautiful music. I mean, she was partially complicit in, in her not enjoying a real career as a musician, you know, choosing to become the muse rather than a creative artist. But at the same time, we have to admit that given the time she lived in, we might 
never have known about her music if not for her, you know, marital adventures. <laughs> um, which, you know, which would have been too bad as well because what there is published of her music is very interesting and certainly worth listening to and performing. Um, so without further ado, we have a recording of the piece, which Suzanne and I performed live at St. John's United Church in Oakville in 2018. Please enjoy our recording of Ansturm by Alma Mahler-Werfel. So there you have it, the beautifully complex Ansturm by Alma Mahler-Werfel. If you'd like to learn more about Alma, please visit our website, artsong-podcast.com, where you'll find a dedicated page to her under Episodes. And that wraps up this episode of the Eternal Feminine series here on the Art Song Podcast. I'm Daniela Theresia, and I've been speaking with Suzanne Yeo about Alma Mahler-Werfel. So thank you to you, Suzanne. Always a pleasure. And thank you for listening. We hope that you'll keep tuning in to the Art Song Podcast this summer as we continue to highlight more women composers and poets. If you enjoyed this, please remember to subscribe and to share the Art Song Podcast with others. So, so sweet evening will go.